Hey everyone, welcome down to the podcast. Today we are revisiting an old episode. This is with Clay Ballard of Top Speed Golf. Uh, last week with John Sherman and Adam Young, we talked about gaining more distance and it really reminded me of this conversation that Clay and I had. Uh, I thought it was a, a really fantastic chat. If you're looking to gain more distance and want some actual ideas to go test out, this is what you need to listen to. So I thought we'd revisit this episode Hit play on this from about a year ago and listen in because it is just as relevant as ever. Um, let me know what you go test out. I'd love to hear because there are a bunch of things that, that we talk about testing. Uh, hit me up on Twitter at Cordy Walker at Golf Science Lab. I'd love to hear what worked for you. Let's get to it. We're on a mission to help golfers from all over the world achieve their goals by understanding what it actually takes to play their best golf. We're talking with leading instructors, researchers, and players themselves to find what is actually working. We talked a couple weeks ago, and you were kind of mentioning to me that before you started working on swing speed, what, what was your swing speed probably, you know, say a year ago, something like that? Yeah, I mean, one, 110 to 113 would be where I was at. Yeah, that's kind of where I was at. When I played on the mini tours, I was like one same range right there. And I just kind of assumed, because my swing speed had been that for a long time, I just kind of assumed that's the way it was. So that's the, really the first key is if you want to hit it short, just don't believe you can hit it any farther. Because if you don't think you can hit it any farther, then there's no reason to practice it. So, you know, I think the way to think about that is how tall are you, Cordy? Just roughly. Yeah, six feet tall. Six foot tall. Okay. So... Do you think you could probably get on like an awesome stretching routine and a special diet and grow to be like 6'6"? I do not. <laughs> yeah, like nobody would. You'd be crazy, right? So if you don't believe something's going to happen, you're just not even going to spend any time doing that, right? It wouldn't, wouldn't make any sense. So if you truly don't believe you can swing any faster, it's almost impossible to pick up any swing speed um, because you just won't spend any time practicing it and you'll kind of, you know, it's just not going to work for you. So uh, another book that was pretty good, have you read um, The Mindset by Carol Dweck? It talks about growth versus fixed mindset. I have not read it, but I am aware of, of the concepts there, yeah. Yeah, so basically she talks about how there's a couple different types of people, and one of them believes that you can accomplish a lot of things. All you have to do is just put in the right effort and work on the right, right stuff, and you're going to get better. So that's a growth mindset. And a fixed mindset would be saying that you know, you're just born. Some people are born being able to swing fast. Some people aren't. And, and that's just, you know, it's just genetics or whatever it is. I'm a short hitter. I'm always going to be a short hitter. So that's that's the way you think about it. Now, if you really believe that you're going to work on it, then you're opening yourself up for a lot of opportunities there. Because when you get a little bit of setback, and this is where it really makes a difference. If you go out and you try to swing faster and it's not working today, then you still go back out and try something different tomorrow and the next day and the next day. And that's really key because when you're always going to have like peaks and valleys, and it's important when things are going bad that you stick with it to break through to the next peak. And I think that's really important. So, you know, tell them a little bit about your swing speed. If you hadn't mentioned it, we yeah. talked about it before. So what have you gone from, you start out 110, 113. Yeah. I think you were originally with Sasha, right? That I was talking about earlier. Yeah. So the story is that, I mean, I've played golf all my life and I mean, I've always hit the ball fine. It's swinging at 110 to 113 is awesome, right? But I always felt like yeah. I was a short hitter, <laughs> which yeah, is yeah. funny how we do that to ourselves. No matter how far you hit it, you always don't hit it that far. Um, and so, you know, I would try to max out and I'd be like, oh man, 
I, you know, I'm going to do this. And then, you know, oh, 113. Great. And then you hit a normal one is like 111. Okay. Who cares? I, I obviously <laughs> yeah. can't hit it swing any faster, hit it any farther. Yeah. Why practice? You know? Yeah. Why try? Um, yeah. And, and it's funny how that, that can actually have a big impact on your mentality. Cause, cause my mentality was honestly like, I hit it short. I really shouldn't try to get that good. Cause I never can be that good. Cause I don't hit it that far. And it's, it sounds silly to say it out loud, but that's what I thought. Uh, yeah. and I bet that a lot of people think that way as well of, you oh, know, yeah. I, I shouldn't really try cause I, I couldn't be that good of a golfer cause I don't hit that far. It's wild, isn't it? It's just wild. Uh, anyways. Yeah. So I, you know, I had this experience, uh, I was down in Birmingham, Alabama at Mark Blackburn's place and uh, with Sasha McKenzie, he was there and I hit some shots with the driver and he was like, Hey, can you try something real quick? And anytime Sasha says, Hey, can you try something? You try it. Um, yeah, just as a heads up. Love yeah. It, yeah. <laughs> yes. And he was like, can you just try to, uh, like have your backswing go really fast? Like just swing it back, yeah. pull it back really hard. And I was like, sure. And, and yeah. I hadn't gotten over one 13 that that whole time and in the first one i think i got to 115 or 116 that's um, awesome it, yeah the, the fastest i had ever gone with with that one cue <laughs> yeah it, and then the end of the day i think i got one up to 119 which was the, the highest yeah absolutely but but that's not where the story ends because we started we were chatting a little bit we were talking about this podcast and you were like hey here can i can i shoot send you a video and have you try a few ideas mm. and um a bird just flew into the window outside my office. Oh, that I heard was, that. <laughs> <laughs> that was okay. Uh, and you, so you sent me a video with a few ideas and um, I watched it and you had a, a few concepts, right? And you, and you talked about this idea of testing. And that's really what I, I got out of it is like, these are some, I can go test all of these and figure out what works and what's not, what doesn't. And so I went out there. I, I The first time I went out there, I went out there with a friend and um I remember the first swing that I took, I missed the ball by about six inches and he just started <laughs> laughing at me. But by the end of that session, I had gotten a couple club head speeds up to like the low 120s. I think one was like 121 or 122 or something and had never done that. And then went back out with some of the, the strategies and concepts that we had talked about. And, um, I think I, you know, got up to that 125, 126 mark. Oh, that's, um, awesome. that's really moving. It is it, it, not necessarily a gamer. I'm not taking that to the golf course, I, yeah. I would say, but it, the impact is that I now swing quite a bit faster just in everyday life than I used to. It, it makes that more normal. Um, yeah. I don't know if you've seen that as well, but yeah. what I call it. So, so what I'll say not to cut you off or anything, no, but I think it's key is you have your max speed, which is your all out 100% as hard as you can go. You're trying with every ounce of energy you have in your body to break your max speed record is what I call it. So you're trying to break that number and, and get the highest number that you've ever hit ever before. So that's what you were doing is you started, you know, you're at 119 and got to 121, 125, 126. So that's your max speed. And then a, a percentage of that, usually I find it somewhere between 90 to 95%. It just depends on the player is going to be your play speed where you find that that's comfortable. So when you're training, you want to go all out as hard as you can swing. And then when you're playing and, and going for accuracy and consistency, then you just tone off of that. So when you started out, everything, you're basically just had one speed. That was your play speed, 110 to 113. Now, as your max speed goes up to 125, 126 with these drills that you've done, now your play speed is probably going to be, if I had to guess, I'd say it's probably around 117, 118, something like that. Does that seem pretty accurate? Yeah. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So as you increase your max speed even more, let's say you get up to 130, well, now maybe your play speed when you tone back down off of that ends up being in the low 120s, mid 120s, something like that, which feels completely comfortable at that point. Yeah, no, no, for sure. I, I, I think it's just fascinating. This first point that, that you're making here about belief is is crazy to me that, you know, for the longest time I had I had no belief that I could hit it any farther. I thought I had tried. The reality is I hadn't really tried. Uh, yeah, because why but, would you? You get any taller. Yeah. Well, I practice, you know, <laughs> so, yeah, that's the way I think about it too. And I had that almost the exact same experience. So I started getting into swing speed stuff, uh, uh, probably a little bit, four or five years ago, but really more the last couple of years. And, um, I was swinging one twelve, one thirteen or so was, was pretty average for me when I was playing a lot. And that was kind of where it was at. And, uh, you know, through doing this, basically the hardest I've swung so far is low one thirties, one thirty one, something like that. But to go from never swinging over one fifteen. Like I would have bet a million bucks I couldn't swing 130, no way. And I haven't gotten any strong. I've gotten in worse shape uh, than I was when I was swinging 112, you know. You know, golf in general, you're sitting down looking at this golf ball, and the last thing you want to do is turn completely away from it. So typically a lot of people will get ball bound a little bit where they don't want to really make your back swing but if you want to hit it super short keep turn toward the ball don't turn away from the ball and and make a short compact swing and what that's going to do is just completely kill your ability to create speed and it's it's completely natural though because the last thing you want to do you're, you watch all beginning golfers and they're really not going to make a big shoulder turn a big hip turn and really wind up because they're afraid they're going to miss the golf ball and we hit a couple of errant drives, maybe hit one out of bounds or in the woods. And all of a sudden, what do you naturally do? You shorten up a little bit. You make a little smaller turn. You don't end up hitting it any straighter. It goes about the same you know, accuracy as you did before. And you just lose. It's a great way to lose like five or 10 miles an hour swing speed. So, you know, I think that's the big piece is, is really just getting, allowing your hips to wind up. That's, I think that's one of the, the worst pieces of golf instruction out there in, in my you know, recently that I've seen a lot and, and I'll, I'll be the first to admit, like at one point in my career, I used to teach the same thing, but to try to really restrict your hip turn so you can get a big stretch. You'll hear a lot of people talking about that. And if you're ultra, ultra flexible, you know, if you're Adam Scott or Rory McIlroy or Tiger Woods or somebody that's hyper mobile, maybe that'll work for you because you're still getting a big turn anyways. Maybe you can restrict your hips and get a 120 degree shoulder turn still. But if you're just a normal guy, like all of us, I'm not, I'm not very flexible. You're going to have to let those hips turn, which is going to let your shoulders turn. And it's going to let your arms go farther back. You don't feel like you're going any farther back. You don't feel like you're stretching anymore. You're just letting everything turn away from it. So you got to really turn away from the ball. Did you find you probably already had a fairly long swing before pretty free flowing. Did that, did that do much for you personally? Or what were your results with that? Yeah. I mean, I had always heard that as well, or this idea of, you know, you want to keep it somewhat compact, keep it under control. And I had never given myself the opportunity to try the opposite of that. Yeah. And I think that that repeated itself as I had never given myself the freedom to try some of these things and just see what happens, that testing mentality. And I think that's really important. Yeah. You got to be able to test. I always say, you know, Let's, let's look at it as an experiment. Try this out for me. If it works, let's keep doing it because that's good. If it doesn't work, just go back to what you always did before. You, you know, there's nothing to be lost here. Nothing to, it's not going to mess anything up. 
But I uh, also think it's funny, you know, when you think about the, the most beautiful swings of all time, the best players of all time, you know, you hear names like Fred Couples and Davis Love III, Adam Scott, you know, Tiger Woods, Jack Nicklaus. You know, you hear a lot of these great, if you look at those swings, those are all free-flowing swings. Those guys don't really super restrict the hips. They let the hips turn, shoulder, big shoulder turn, really let the hands flow back and get pretty high. And that's the easiest way to create a lot of speed because you create this big arc and you create a lot of space and time for your hands to apply more speed to the club. Uh, you don't have to feel like you're swinging any harder and you automatically just get, you know, three or four miles an hour swing speed. Was this the cue of, of lifting your left foot? Is, is that what allows this one or is that a different one? Yeah, if you're not very, if you're not very flexible, I think that's a big key for, for most golfers. I find that probably close to 75 to 90% of the golfers that I work with that are just regular guys got to lift that left left heel a little bit. And that's like a big no, no, like, Oh man, you can't lift that left heel. But it's like Jack Nicholas did. Okay. Doing that. You know, Fred couples lifts the left heel a little bit, all kinds of guys have lifted the left heel throughout history. I, I think it just really just got recently kind of in vogue to keep the heel down and to keep the feet kind of solid. I think it really stemmed from people videotaping so much and becoming obsessed with how their swing looks on video that they do some things that actually hurt your swing because it looks a little cleaner on video. And uh, so they actually practice and getting worse, swinging slower, in, in my opinion. But that's that's just a guess. I'm not sure if that's really what it came from or not. So the cue that you gave me to test out was to point the bottom of your left shoe down the fairway. And I just laughed when I, when I heard that because I thought that <laughs> was the funniest thing I'd ever heard. Um, <laughs> and it works. Like, I'm sure I absolutely didn't even get close to doing that, but I definitely had to think that to even get it anywhere off the ground. Yeah. So if you imagine your, your spikes on the bottom of your, your left shoe, your heel of your left shoe, you know, if, if I can get those spikes, if I let my knee kind of rotate up, I let my left heel lift up and, and I get those spikes pointing down the fairway. Now, in reality, like you said, you're not really going to do that. You'll probably just let the left heel lift maybe an inch or two off the ground in reality. But um, if you if you do that, that lets the hips rotate more. You don't feel any tighter. You actually feel looser when you're doing that. And then naturally, your shoulders rotate more. Your arms go farther back. And you feel like your swing is more free-flowing when you do that rather than trying to keep that heel down, make it look pretty on camera and that kind of stuff. And then from there, so go to the extreme, really exaggerate, see what kind of swing speed you can get. And then from there, maybe you decide, yeah, if I just barely lift my heel, that's what I like the best. You know, you don't have to go full board every time, but test it out first and then tone it down from there. So the next one, and this is this is everybody really has this, if you want to really lose some distance, just chuck that thing from the top of the swing, throw that club shaft as soon as you start down, you know, lose all your lag and oh buddy, you're gonna you're gonna really be hitting it short and sweet. So that's that's kinda the natural reaction everybody has is that as soon as they start the downswing they want to get more speed. So they start to accelerate the club really, really quickly from the top of the swing. They kick that shaft out. But the problem is, you know, the reason you want to have a lot of lag is just because whenever you release that lag, and I think this is another big misconception, is that people think, oh, I need to hold my lag. Well, if you hold lag, you're actually going to lose lag and slow down your club at speed. The speed comes from releasing your lag. Now, if I, if I start to cast from the top I'm burning up that potential speed. So your club head is actually moving faster than, than the pro players or from the high swing speed players at the top of the swing. And I've lost that, that angle of lag between my wrist and the, the club. 
And now when I get down to the bottom of the swing, I don't have anything left. I've already burned up that swing speed and I don't have the ability to accelerate through contact. So, you know, halfway down the swing for a, for a tour player, a pro player, the, this club head's only moving 50 miles an hour or so. In the last, you know, three to four feet of the swing, that's when it goes from, you know, 50 or it depends on the player too, but it goes from, from there all the way up to say 120. So it's, it's really about not holding it, but I actually feel like I, you know, I teach players to kind of increase the lag as they start the downswing. So don't get as much wrist set going back. Increase your lag as you start down and then try to fire that thing as hard as you can at the bottom of the swing, though. Let that, let that really whip through at the bottom. And when I find players try to hold on, they get really, really tight and get bound up and try to hold on from the top, it starts to burn up that lag as soon as they start, start swinging down and you just got nothing left at the bottom. Gotcha. Gotcha. Have you tried much of that? I don't know if I got into that much with the with the drills that I sent you over. Have you ever experimented with that? No, not personally. I don't know if that's. I, I mean, obviously, I haven't tested, so I I can't speak to it. But just like I feel like I'm decent at that. Yeah, I've seen your swing. You got you got a good amount of lag. So obviously, if, for players that have good lag already, then you're not going to see the huge results that somebody that's casting or something like that. Yeah. So sometimes I'll see players. Uh, one of my other instructors who just left my house a little while ago, Quentin Patterson, he had a player that over a period of a few weeks, he he increased his lag almost probably 45 degrees more. So he just started working on some drills and increased his lag and he started driving it like 50 to 60 yards farther hmm. in just a few weeks, which is huge for him. I mean, he thought he won the lottery, but he was casting it before. So there's obviously somebody that comes in that's already got great lag, not going to see as much results with that one. Another one that I think was I had a note on here, we've already kind of gone over, but you, you have to have something to measure this with. So if I'm going out and I'm going to test something, it's not really a test if I don't have any device to give me some feedback. So that's why I recommended to you, Cordy, before we did any of this, I had you order one of those swing speed radars, real simple device, or you could use a voice caddy, the SC200 or 300. Those are great because you make a swing and then immediately you know, did I do it right or did I not? Did my swing speed get faster or did it get slower? And I'll be willing to bet, I hadn't talked about this with you before, but I bet there's a couple times you tried something out and your mind said, oh, I bet that one was better. And then you look down and it was actually two or three miles an hour slower than what you did before. Did you ever have that experience where you could swear something was going to work? I did. Why, why does that happen? It's just because you have mis- everybody's got misconceptions about where your speed comes from. So you have these ideas in your mind that say, okay, speed comes from here. But when you actually test it out, you realize, well, I was wrong. You know, that's the whole point of the testing. So you end up, by having that device down there, now it's direct cause and effect. I try something out, I get immediate feedback, and it's telling me I'm on the right track, I'm on the wrong track. So you take away that device, and you have no ability to know if you're getting better or worse. You think you're getting better because maybe you hit one solid or something like that. And that's probably what usually happens is we'll, we'll actually swing slower, but we'll hit one solid, and we'll say, oh, man, that one was fast. But in reality, I actually got slower. So you, you got to have something to measure with if you're going to do any of this. Absolutely. You know, when, when we bring a growth mindset into other areas of the game, we can measure that whether, you know, that it's a, by playing a game or doing a test or something like that. But with, yeah, trying to in, increase distance, you know, and, and club head speed, you have to measure it, but it's really easy just to ignore that. So I think it's a super important point and, you know, 125 bucks for, for the, I forget what is that exactly called? Swing speed? Radar. The one yeah. I really like the best, if you if you if somebody has the money to spend, is the 
There's a company called Voice Caddy. It's a Swing Caddy SC300, I think is the name of it. It's about 300 bucks. And it tells you a few other things in there. Like it'll tell you the distance the shot went. And you can you can change it between clubs. And it does some some basic math to figure figure that out. But it's as long as you get a good clean strike, then it uh you know, you don't have like a bunch of dirt and mud flying up in the way and kind of confusing it as to what's going on. It does pretty good at getting your ball speed, your club head speed, and your carry distance. So it's pretty pretty nice for 300 bucks. Absolutely. Absolutely. So kind of the way that you use the measurement and the feedback is you test concepts, mm-hmm. you find what works, and then you you train that or, or something like that. Is it? Talk me through your progression of, of using that feedback. Yeah. So if you're I always, it, it depends on what you're working on. I have a lot of different ways that I test um, different things in the swing. So I have a class called a ball striking master class where we go over a lot of things in contact. And then we would read divots or we would read impact location on the face or we would read ball flight curvature. And then I would tell the player how to read that and understand what they did in their swing to cause that. So you understand the cause and effect of what's going on. That's a separate class that I do. But um, when you're specifically for distance, you have an idea that you want to test that you say, you know, let's say you're reading a golf digest, for example, and you say, oh, that's a great tip. This sounds really interesting. I'm going to restrict my hip turn and make a shorter backswing. And that's supposed to make me more coiled and a tighter stretch. And I'm going to get more power. Well, if you go out to the range and you say, man, I love this restricted hip turn idea. I just can't wait to practice this. But every time you make a swing doing that, you lose three or four miles an hour of club head speed. You immediately know, okay, something's, something's wrong here. This isn't working. So a lot of times we get tricked by thinking, oh, this sounds really good. I like this idea. But in reality, it's just wrong. Well, if you didn't have that radar there, maybe you would have practiced that for another month or two months or three months, and your swing speed would have got shorter and shorter and shorter, but you would swear you're on the right track. And whenever you're swinging really fast, your brain is sending out signals throughout your body through motor neurons. And depending on how much myelin or how well myelinated those neurons are, that's either going to speed up the signal or it's going to slow it down. So in a highly trained athlete, like say like a Usain Bolt, who's the fastest man on earth, his brain is sending out signals and it's just zipping through his body. The muscles are firing. Everything's happening really fast. Now take somebody that's been sitting at a desk job for, let's say the last 40 years, hasn't done any real speed training, anything like that. Well, his body has conserved a lot of that energy and his neurons aren't firing as fast. Well, if I want to get those to fire fast, then I have to go to 100% till I'm basically at failure. And when you do that, your body says, I'm not fast enough, like there's something wrong here. And it goes in and tries to make those neurolog- that neurological system faster so it can, it can send the signals faster over time. So things like, you know, if you're a young guy, something like doing sprints would be really good for this, for your golf game doing jumps, trying to jump, do max jumps as high as you can get. If you're going to lift weights, try to lift them as fast and as hard as you can lift them. And what that does is that not only gets the signal there faster, it also helps it to recruit more what are called motor units. So typically your body, whenever you're doing something, if you're in control, you're doing something, say 50% effort, it's recruiting the smallest amount of the muscle possible. And it's recruiting the slow twitch muscle fiber. So type, type one, uh, slow twitch, type 2A, which would be your slower fast twitch or more endurance fast twitch. And then you have type 2X, which would be the fastest. Well, if I do something all out for as fast as I can, like swing a driver absolutely as hard as I can, or I'm lifting weights or I'm running or I'm doing anything like that, if I'm going 100% effort, 
I'm trying to recruit the largest amount of motor units in my muscle as I can, and your body gets better at adapting that. So it makes neural adaptations to actually fire those muscles faster. So if you try to swing hard for one day, you're not going to be able to swing. Even if you're doing everything exactly the same, as you train longer, your body makes adaptions to be able to swing faster. So in a nutshell, that's a big fancy way of saying if you swing in control, you're not going to get the swing speeds that your, that your true potential is. So whenever you're training for swing speed or distance, swing at 100% absolutely as hard as you can. Like you said, you whiff that first ball, golf ball. Yeah, it's a little embarrassing. It's not very fun, but that's exactly how it should be done because you're pushing your body to a level where it's losing control. And then once your swing speed comes up, then just back it down a little bit and get in your comfortable play speed when you go out and play. But you have to push it to be able to, to really increase it, you know? And I would say just as my experience is that, you know, after doing this kind of training that you are just completely exhausted, I didn't know that I could swing that fast and feel that tired after being at the range. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, it really does. I mean, you make uh that's another one. There's So there's a uh, stuff called in your type 2X muscle fiber, there's something called phosphocreatine, which is the energy source stored like in the muscle itself. You've only got about eight seconds of that. Well, it's somewhere between five and ten, just depends on the person based on the research out there. You've only got about that much time of energy to be, to be at 100% of your swing speed. And then it takes about a minute to two minutes to rebuild that back into the muscle. So if you're trying to swing as hard as you can, you know, you don't have very much of that in, that true potential energy to do much more than one or two swings without resting for a couple minutes. So if you go out there and just beat balls and beat balls and beat balls, you're basically training yourself to swing slower. Whereas, you know, if you're, again, like a Usain Bolt analogy, if he runs for 10 seconds, all that energy is burned up. He's going to have to sit there and rest for more than two minutes, probably to build it back in there. So I think that's really important too. Like just don't go out there and beat a ton of balls and think I'm going to swing faster. Like take your time, catch your breath, you know, take a sip of your beer and hang out a little bit <laughs> and then uh, and go ahead and rip another one, you know. I think number six is, you know, go out, buy a new driver, buy some latest, greatest training aid, spend a bunch of money on some kind of special golf shaft and do all this kind of stuff. I see so many people that want to hit it farther. And there's so many advertisements out there that are going to talk about how you're going to gain tons of yardage and stuff like that. And some of it's good and some of it's bad. But at the end of the day, you know, you really don't get that much out of buying a new driver because they're all limited. You know, the this coefficient of restitution on the club is all limited to the same, same amount. So you're really not going to get a lot more speed. Like I'm playing with a driver that's eight years old and I hit it basically as far as all the new drivers because the, they're just not allowed to be hotter or they'd be illegal. So go out and spend a bunch of money on golf clubs. I don't really think it's going to get you a lot more distance or training aids or stuff like that. Even though you may find a driver that's good for you that you're going to hit better. But in that, I think there is one little side note to this that's pretty interesting, where it is if you get a longer driver, almost everybody, Liam McLeod with Golf Labs up in uh, Canada had some pretty cool research he did on this uh, when we went to a Titleist uh, TPI power seminar that they had. He was showing some of this stuff, but he showed that pretty much everybody swings faster the longer your driver gets. So if you take a normal length driver, you add an inch to it, you're going to swing faster. You add two inches, you're going to swing faster than that. You add five inches, you're going to swing faster than that. So he was talking about how when he was doing long drive, he was actually swinging like a 56-inch driver or something crazy, which is like 11 inches longer than a normal a normal driver. And they actually made that illegal. I think the day they changed that rule, he was like, oh, yeah, I, know I'm, I knew I'm toast now because he's like a normal-looking guy. 
and these guys are huge that he's competing against. So test out what I would recommend doing. If you're going to play around with equipment, test out, just go to the local golf shop, tell them to put a shaft extension in your driver and then test out an inch longer, two inches longer, three inches longer. And it's super cheap. These shaft extensions cost $5, way cheaper than buying a new golf club and kind of play around with that a little bit. And I bet you you'll pick up a little bit of distance and some people will find that they can handle a longer, a longer club. Basically, people that are more accurate can easily handle a couple inch longer driver. If you're really wild with your driver already, it may not be worth making it longer to get a few more miles per hour because you may not be able to keep it in play. But I think, it's, again, test it out. See if it works. If it works, keep doing it. If it doesn't, then go back to what you used to do, you know? So we've got someone listening and they're like, Clay, I'm just trying to make good contact here and I, I can barely find a fairway as it is. How is any of this relevant to me? It's not. It wouldn't be relevant at all for that. That's a, So th- there's a big difference there in how you're going to practice this. So when you're practicing speed, if you really want to get faster, you can't be worried about making contact at all. It's truly got to be training your body to be as fast as it can be. Now, if I'm going to train accuracy, I wouldn't be training speed. So if I'm training accuracy, I would not be trying to swing hard. And I would do things like, um, do you use you big proponent like foot spray powder on the, on the driver face? Yeah, absolutely. That? It's a great feedback. Yeah. So I, w- I would do, if I'm training for accuracy, I would definitely not be working on speed. I would just say, okay, I'm going to spray my face up with foot spray powder and I'm going to start to notice a pattern in impact locations. And then I'm going to try to purposely hit the ball a little more off the heel and a little more off the toe a little higher on the face, a little lower on the face. So what I'm training myself to do there is actually get an awareness of the club face so that I feel like it's just kind of an extension of my body and I can I can hit it different parts of the face. And I've found even guys that are 20 handicappers, we talk about this a lot in my ball striking masterclass that we do, we do drills like that. Guys that are 20 handicappers are shocked that they can actually control where they're hitting on the face a little bit once they start to practice that. So that would be your accuracy training. Your speed training is done completely different. So those are two separate parts that you do. And then once you train those separately, you kind of bring them together to find a good mix of both of those. If you swing too fast, you're going to lose some control. If you swing too much for accuracy, you're going to lose some speed. So you just have to find that that sweet spot where you're going to get your best performance. That's going to change. You know, right now, maybe for you, 117, you feel like you can play, you know, swing fast and fairly well in control. In the future, that may be 120 or 123 or whatever it is. So the mindset and the mentality here is we're going to test and we're going to train speed. We're not going to hope for any gimmick or anything like that. We're going to we're going to put in the work. And while we are training, the results that we see as far as contact and ball flight and stuff like that aren't the metric that we are concerned about. Correct. Yeah, if you slice every one of them in the woods and you hit it out of bounds and you do all this crazy stuff, that's going to be trained separately. So you start to get some crazy results. And, and here's what I found, a couple points on that. Probably number one, speed is the easiest thing to train. You probably have to put the least amount of effort and time in to increase your speed than you do anything else. So if you're going to improve a, some of the mechanics of your swing or make changes to your swing, that's going to take some time. If you're going to improve your club face awareness and control and stuff like that, that takes a little bit more time. You can amp up your speed in, in five minutes. That's probably the, the least amount of effort. So it's really not that much hard work to get. Like you said, you went out for two range sessions and went from 119 to 126, right? Like that's mm-hmm. not that's not like a, I'm really grinding it out here. So that's really good. That's a good thing. And then the, the other piece with the accuracy, you know, 
just find a good mix of that. Do the drills with the accuracy too. And then, you know, you're going to naturally kind of fall into where you're going to find that sweet spot for you. So I think it's just, you really got to commit to the drills separately and then you'll naturally kind of put them together if that makes sense. Absolutely. I think I completely went off the rails from your question. There. No, that, that <laughs> does answer my question. Another one would be, I'm old, overweight, not flexible. Is this relevant for me? Yeah, so we do, um, I have two instructors, uh, Robin Rosado and Quentin Patterson, who do these distance clinics down here in Orlando. So usually the average speed for a, a two-day, it's a two-day clinic. At, on average, players, I think it's, they pick up just under 10 miles an hour speed, so like 9.7 miles per hour. The average age for people coming to that is mostly in their, I think it's around mid-50s, late-50s. They're not guys that are, we're not talking about 20-year-old players here. Everything that I, I teach, you can pl- you can do it if you're 85 years old. So, you know, you're going to be able to pick up speed at any age. If you These, these same principles that apply to a 20-year-old are going to apply to a guy that's 85. The 20-year-old guy, if he lifts his heel a little higher, he's going to swing faster. A guy that's got 70-mile-an-hour swing speed and, he, and he's got a uh, hip, bad hip and bad backs and overweight and stuff like that, common problems that, that most everybody deals with something like that, he's still going to pick up swing speed when he lifts his left heel. So it's, it's really pretty universal stuff. I don't, I don't find through all the testing I've done with different players, you know, the same things work for everybody, really. And, you know, with this mentality or mindset we're bringing into this, someone might say like, oh, aren't you going to hurt yourself? Well, you might, but you test that and then you don't do that anymore. That, I mean, that would be my understanding of how to apply this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, for example, somebody may say, um, I can't make a big turn because I have my back is fused in seven different places. Well, I would just say, okay, we won't well, make sure you lift your heel so you'll get a, a decent, a good turn for whatever you got. But if you can't turn your back, you can't turn, you know, you can't rotate. So, we'd test that. We'd see what, what would be in your comfortable range of rotation. And then we work on the other stuff that has nothing to do with rotation, like getting more lag you know, really trying to get the club to whip through contact and accelerate through the ball rather than, than burning that speed up at the top of the swing, that kind of thing. Absolutely. So I usually do some tests. If, I'm, if I have a player in person, what I'll do is, is if, if I'm going to make a swing change and it looks like they may have some physical limitations, I'll just do a quick, a quick screen to see if they can make the motion without a golf club at all. And if they can, then we're good. If they, if they can't, then a common one, a lot of times people can't, can't raise their arms vertically above their head because um, they have shoulder issues. Uh, and that's another key to, to creating some speed, get those hands higher to create a bigger arc. Um, so I would test a player for that. You know, if you can't lift your arms over your head, which probably a, a decent number of people can't, then there's no point in trying to get your arms higher because it's, it's not ever going to happen. Right? You need to work on your shoulders or something like that or just work on other stuff that you can do. Thank you so much for hanging out with us today. Thank you to Clay for taking the time to share so much. If you enjoyed this conversation with Clay, make sure to check out what he's up to over at Top Speed Golf. Tons of good information. His membership is is awesome as he researches and tries to figure out what it takes to uh, swing the golf club better and help you hit the ball better. Uh, I enjoyed this conversation. I hope that you understand the mindset to take into this and why I think this is relevant. I think it's fun to explore different ideas. What if you set out on your own 
project more distance or swing faster, hit the ball farther, whatever it is. And you explore, you try different ideas. Some of them aren't going to work, but some are. And hopefully you can create a short checklist from this conversation and try to knock off some of these ideas and see what works for you. Because I bet there is the ability for you to swing faster and hit the ball farther. Thanks for tuning in this week. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening. If that's Spotify, Apple Podcasts, on the Alexa skill that we have. uh, So you can stay tuned for all the episodes. Next week, you will hear some quick questions with Clay, where we just talk a little bit about himself and hear some interesting answers from him on our quick questions. This episode was hosted and written by me, Cordy Walker. You can follow me on Twitter at Cordy Walker and it was edited, mixed, and produced by Just Hit Publish Productions.